Section 8 of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter 4 Carissimo. Part 2. Not much data to go on, you will, I think, admit, and I can assure you, sir, that had I not possessed that unbounded belief in myself, which is the true hallmark of genius, I would at the outset have felt profoundly discouraged. As it was, I found just the right words of consolation and of hope wherewith to bow my brilliant client out of my humble apartments and then to settle down to deep and considered meditation. Nothing, sir, is so conducive to thought as a long, brisk walk through the crowded streets of Paris. So I brushed my coat, put on my hat at a becoming angle, and started on my way. I walked as far as Surusne, and I thought. After that, feeling fatigued, I sat on the terrace of the Café Bourbon, overlooking the river. There I sipped my coffee and thought. I walked back into Paris in the evening, and still thought, and thought, and thought. After that I had some dinner, washed down by an agreeable bottle of wine. Did I mention that the lovely creature had given me a hundred francs on account? Then I went for a stroll along the Quai Voltaire, and I may safely say that there is not a single side and tortuous street in its vicinity that I did not explore from end to end during the course of that never-to-be-forgotten evening. But still my mind remained in a chaotic condition. I had not succeeded in forming any plan. What a quandary, sir! Oh, what a quandary! Here was I, Hector Ratichon, the confidant of kings, the right hand of two emperors, set to the task of stealing a dog, for that is what I should have to do, from an unscrupulous gang of thieves whose identity, abode, and methods were alike unknown to me. Truly, sir, you will own that this was a Herculean task. Vaguely my thoughts reverted to Theodore. He might have been of good counsel, for he knew more about thieves than I did, but the ungrateful wretch was out of the way on the one occasion when he might have been of use to me who had done so much for him. Indeed, my reason told me that I need not trouble my head about Theodore. He had vanished. That he would come back presently was, of course, an indubitable fact. People like Theodore never vanish completely. He would come back and demand I know not what, his share, perhaps, in a business which was so promising, even if it was still so vague. Five thousand francs! A round sum! If I gave Theodore five hundred, the sum would at once appear meagre, unimportant. Four thousand five hundred francs! It did not even sound well to my mind. So I took care that Theodore vanished from my mental vision as completely as he had done for the last two days from my ken, and as there was nothing more that could be done that evening, 
I turned my weary footsteps toward my lodgings at Passy. All that night, sir, I lay wakeful and tossing in my bed, alternately fuming and rejecting plans for the attainment of that golden goal, the recovery of Madame de Nole's pet dog. And the whole of the next day I spent in vain quest. I visited every haunt of ill fame known to me within the city. I walked about with a pistol in my belt, a hunk of bread and cheese in my pocket, and slowly growing despair in my heart. In the evening Madame la Comtesse de Nole called for news of Carissimo, and I could give her none. She cried, sir, and implored, and her tears and entreaties got on to my nerves until I felt ready to fall into hysterics. One more day, and all my chances of a bright and wealthy future would have vanished. Unless the money was forthcoming on the morrow, the dog would be destroyed, and with him my every hope of that five thousand francs. And though she still irradiated charm and luxury from her entire lovely person, I begged her not to come to the office again, and promised that as soon as I had news to impart, I would at once present myself at her house in the Faubourg Saint-Germain. That night I never slept one wink. Think of it, sir. The next few hours were destined to see me either a prosperous man for many days to come, or a miserable, helpless, disappointed wretch. At eight o'clock I was at my office. Still no news of Theodore. I could now no longer dismiss him from my mind. Something had happened to him, I could have no doubt. This anxiety added to the other more serious one drew me to a state bordering on frenzy. I hardly knew what I was doing. I wandered all day up and down the Quai Voltaire and the Quai de Grande Augustine, and in and around tortuous streets till I was dog-tired, distracted, half-crazy. I went to the morgue, thinking to find there Theodore's dead body, and found myself vaguely looking for the mutilated corpse of Carissimo. Indeed, after a while Theodore and Carissimo became so inextricably mixed up in my mind that I could not have told you if I was seeking for the one or for the other, and if Madame la Comtesse de Nole was now waiting to clasp her pet dog or my man of all work to her exquisite bosom. She, in the meanwhile, had received a second yet more peremptory missive through the same channel as the previous one. A grimy, deformed man with ginger-coloured hair, and wearing a black patch over one eye, had been seen by one of the servants lolling down the street where Madame lived, and subsequently the concierge discovered that an exceedingly dirty scrap of paper had been thrust under the door of his lodge. The writer of the epistle demanded that Madame la Comtesse should stand in person at six o'clock that same evening at the corner of the Rue Guenegaud, behind Institut de France. Two men, each wearing a blue blouse and peaked cap, would meet her there. She must hand over the money to one of them, whilst the other would have Carissimo in his arms. The missive closed with the usual threats that if the police were mixed up in the affair, or the money not forthcoming, Carissimo would be destroyed. Six o'clock was the hour fixed by these abominable thieves, 
for the final doom of Carissimo. It was now close on five. In a little more than an hour my last hope of five or ten thousand francs and a smile of gratitude from a pair of lovely lips would have gone, never again to return. A great excess of righteous rage seized upon me. I determined that those miserable thieves, whoever they were, should suffer for the disappointment which I was now enduring. If I was to lose five thousand francs, they at least should not be left free to pursue their evil ways. I would communicate with the police. The police should meet the miscreants at the corner of the Rue Gunegaud. Carissimo would die. His lovely mistress would be broken-hearted. I would be left to mourn yet another illusion of a possible fortune. But they would suffer in jail or in New Caledonia the consequences of all their misdeeds. Fortified by this resolution, I turned my weary footsteps in the direction of the gendarmerie, where I intended to lodge my denunciation of those abominable thieves and blackmailers. The night was dark, the streets ill-lighted, the air bitterly cold. A thin drizzle, half rain, half snow, was descending, chilling me to the bone. I was walking rapidly along the river-bank, with my coat-collar pulled up to my ears, and still instinctively peering up every narrow street, which debouches on the quay. Then suddenly I spied Theodore. He was coming down the reborn, slouching along with head bent in his usual way. He appeared to be carrying something not exactly heavy, but cumbersome under his left arm. Within the next few minutes he would have been face to face with me, for I had come to halt at the angle of the street, determined to have it out with the rascal then and there, in spite of the cold, and in spite of my anxiety about Carissimo. All of a sudden he raised his head and saw me, and in a second he turned on his heel and began to run up the street in the direction whence he had come. At once I gave chase. I ran after him, and then, sir, he came for a second within the circle of light projected by the street lanthorn. But in that one second I had seen that which turned my frozen blood into liquid lava. A tail, sir, a dog's tail, fluffy and curly, projecting from beneath that recreant's left arm. A dog, sir, a dog. Carissimo, the darling of Madame la Comtesse de Nol's heart, Carissimo, the recovery of whom would mean five thousand francs into my pocket, Carissimo, I knew it. For me there existed but one dog in all the world, one dog and one spawn of the devil, one arch-traitor, one limb of Satan, Theodore. How he had come by Carissimo I had not time to con conjecture. I called to him. I called his accursed name, using appellations which fell short of those which he deserved. But the louder I called, the faster he ran, and I, breathless, panting, ran after him, determined to run him to earth, fearful lest I should lose him in the darkness of the night. All down the Rue Bonne we ran, and already I could hear behind me the heavy and more leisured tramp of a couple of gendarmes, who in their turn had started to give chase. I tell you, sir, 
the sound lent wings to my feet. A chance, a last chance, was being offered me by a benevolent fate to earn that five thousand francs, the keystone to my future fortune. If I had the strength to seize and hold Theodore until the gendarmes came up, and before he had time to do away with the dog, the five thousand francs could still be mine. So I ran, sir, as I had never run before. The beads of perspiration poured down from my forehead. The breath came stertorous and hot from my heaving breast. Then suddenly Theodore disappeared. Disappeared, sir, as if the earth had swallowed him up. A second ago I had seen him dimly, yet distinctly through the veil of snow and rain ahead of me running with that unmistakable shuffling gait of his, hugging the dog closely under his arm. I had seen him, another effort and I might have touched him. Now the long and deserted street lay dark and mysterious before me, and behind me I could hear the measured tramp of the gendarmes and their peremptory call of HALT IN THE NAME OF THE KING! But not in vain, sir, am I called Hector Ratichon. Not in vain have kings and emperors reposed confidence in my valour and my presence of mind. In less time than it takes to relate, I had already marked with my eye the very spot down the street where I had last seen Theodore. I hurried forward and saw at once that my surmise had been correct. At that very spot, sir, was a low doorway which gave on a dark and dank passage. The door itself was open. I did not hesitate. My life stood in the balance, but I did not falter. I might be affronting within the next second or two a gang of desperate thieves, but I did not quake. I turned into that doorway, sir. The next moment I felt a stunning blow between my eyes. I just remember calling out with all strength of my lungs, Police! Gendarme! A moi! Then nothing more. I woke with the consciousness of violent wordy warfare carried on around me. I was lying on the ground, and the first things I saw were three or four pairs of feet standing close together. Gradually, out of the confused hubbub, a few sentences struck my reawakened senses. The man is drunk. I won't have him inside the house. I tell you, this is a respectable house. This from a shrill feminine voice. We've never had the law inside our doors before. By this time I had succeeded in raising myself on my elbow, and by the dim light of a hanging lamp, somewhere down the passage, I was pretty well able to take stock of my surroundings. The half-dozen bedroom candlesticks on a table up against the wall, the row of keys hanging on hooks, fixed to a board above, the glass partition with the words concierge and reception painted across it. All told me that this was one of those small, mostly squalid and disreputable lodging-houses or hotels in which this quarter of Paris still abounds. The two gendarmes who had been running after me were arguing the matter of my presence here with the proprietor of the place and with the concierge. I struggled to my feet, whereupon, for the space of a solid two minutes, I had to bear as calmly as I could the abuse and vituperation 
which the feminine proprietor of this respectable house chose to hurl at my unfortunate head, after which I obtained a hearing from the bewildered minions of the law. To them I gave as brief a succinct a narrative as I could of the events of the past three days, the theft of Carissimo, the disappearance of Theodore, my meeting him a while ago with a dog under his arm, his second disappearance, this time within the doorway of this respectable abode, and finally the blow which alone had prevented me from running the abominable thief to earth. The gendarmes at first were incredulous. I could see that they were still under the belief that my excitement was due to overindulgence in alcoholic liquor, whilst Madame the proprietress called me an abominable liar for daring to suggest that she harboured thieves within her doors. Then suddenly, as if in vindication of my character, there came from a floor above the sound of a loud, shrill bark. Carissimo, I cried triumphantly. Then I added in a rapid whisper, Madame la Comtesse de Nole is rich. She spoke of a big reward for the recovery of her pet. These happy words had the effect of stimulating the seal of the gendarmes. Madame the proprietress grew somewhat confused and incoherent, and finally blurted it out that one of her lodgers, a highly respectable gentleman, did keep a dog, but that there was no crime in that, surely. One of your lodgers? queried the representative of the law. When did he come? About three days ago, she replied sullenly. What room does he occupy? Number 25 on the third floor. He came with his dog, I interposed quickly. A spaniel? Yes. And your lodger, is he an ugly, slouchy creature, with hooked nose, bleary eyes, and shaggy yellow hair? But to this she vouchsafed no reply. Already the matter had passed out of my hands. One of the gendarmes prepared to go upstairs and bade me follow him whilst he ordered his comrade to remain below, and on no account to allow anyone to enter or leave the house. The proprietress and concierge were warned that if they interfered with the due execution of the law, they would be severely dealt with, after which we went upstairs. For a while, as we ascended, we could hear the dog barking furiously. Then presently, just as we reached the upper landing, we heard a loud curse, a scramble, and then a piteous whine, quickly smothered. My very heart stood still. The next moment, however, the gendarme had kicked open the door of number 25. I followed him into the room. The place looked dirty and squalid in the extreme, just the sort of place I should have expected Theodore to haunt. It was almost bare, save for a table in the centre, a couple of rickety chairs, a broken-down bedstead, and an iron stove in the corner. On the table a tallow candle was spluttering and throwing a very feeble circle of light around. At first glance I thought that the room was empty. Then suddenly I heard another violent expletive and became aware of a man sitting close beside the iron stove. He turned to stare at us as we entered, but to my surprise it was not Theodore's ugly face which confronted us. The man sitting there alone in the room, where I had expected to see Theodore and Carissimo, had a shaggy beard and an undoubted ginger hue. He had on a blue blouse and a peaked cap. Beneath his cap his lank hair protruded more decided in colour even than his beard. 
His head was sunk between his shoulders, and right across his face, from the left eyebrow over the cheek and as far as his ear, he had a hideous crimson scar which told us vividly against the ghastly pallor of his face. But there was no sign of Theodore. At first my friend the gendarme was quite urbane. He asked very politely to see Monsieur's pet dog. Monsieur denied all knowledge of a dog, which denial only tended to establish his own guilt and the veracity of mine own narrative. The gendarme thereupon became more peremptory, and the man promptly lost his temper. I, in the meanwhile, was glancing round the room, and soon spied a wall cupboard, which had obviously been deliberately screened by the bedstead. While my companion was bringing the whole majesty of the law to bear upon the miscreant's denegations, I calmly dragged the bedstead aside and opened the cupboard door. An accusation from my quivering throat brought the gendarme to my side. Crouching in the dark recess of the wall cupboard was Carissimo, not dead, thank Godness, but literally shaking with terror. I pulled him out as gently as I could for he was so frightened that he growled and snapped viciously at me. I handed him to the gendarme, for by the side of Carissimo I had seen something which literally froze my blood within my veins. It was Theodore's hat and coat, which he had been wearing when I chased him to this house of mystery and of ill-fame, and wrapped together with it was a rag all smeared with blood, whilst the same hideous stains were now distinctly visible on the door of the cupboard itself. I turned to the gendarme, who at once confronted the abominable malefactor with the obvious proofs of a horrible crime. But the depraved wretch stood by, sir, perfectly calm, and with a cynicism in his whole bearing which I had never before seen equalled. "'I know nothing about that coat,' he asserted with a shrug of the shoulders. "'Nor about the dog.' The gendarme by this time was purple with fury. "'Not know anything about the dog!' he exclaimed, in a voice choked with righteous indignation. "'Why, he—' he barked. But this indisputable fact in no way disconcerted the miscreant. "'I heard a dog yapping,' he said with consummate impudence. "'But I thought he was in the next room.' "'No wonder,' he added coolly, "'since he was in a wall cupboard.' A wall cupboard, the gendarme rejoined triumphantly, situated in the very room which you occupied at this moment. That is a mistake, my friend, the cynical wretch retorted, undaunted. I do not occupy this room. I do not lodge in this hotel at all. Then how came you to be here? I came on a visit to a friend who happened to be out when I arrived. I found a pleasant fire here, and I sat down to warm myself. Your noisy and unwarranted eruption into this room has so bewildered me that I no longer know whether I am standing on my head or on my heels. We'll show you soon enough what you are standing on, my fine fellow, the gendarme reposted with breezy cheerfulness. Allons! I must say that the pampered minion of the law arose splendidly to the occasion. He seized the miscreant by the arm and took him downstairs there to confront him with the proprietors of the establishment, while I, with marvellous presence of mind, took possession of Carissimo 
and hid him as best as I could beneath my coat. In the hall below a surprise and disappointment were in store for me. I had reached the bottom of the stairs when the shrill feminine accents of Madame the proprietress struck unpleasantly on my ear. "'Now, now, I tell you,' she was saying, "'this man is not my lodger. He never came here with a dog.' there she added volubly and pointing an unwashed finger at carissimo who was struggling and growling in my arms there is the dog a gentleman brought him with him last wednesday when he inquired if he could have a room here for a few nights number twenty-five happened to be vacant and i have no objection to dogs i let the gentleman have the room and they paid me twenty sous in advance when he took possession and told me he would keep the room three nights. The gentleman? What gentleman? The gendarme queried, rather inanely, I thought. My lodger, the woman replied, is out for the moment, but he will be back presently, I make no doubt. The dog is his. What is he like? The minion of the law queried abruptly. Oh, the dog? she retorted impudently. No, no, your lodger. Once more the unwashed finger went up and pointed straight at me. I described him well enough just now, thin and slouchy in his wise. He has lank yellow hair and nose perpetually crimson, with a cold, no doubt, and pale, watery eyes. Theodore, I exclaimed mentally. Bewildered, the gendarme pointed to his prisoner. But this man, he queried, why the proprietress replied i've seen monsieur twice or was it three times he would visit number twenty-five now and then i will not weary you with further accounts of the close examination to which the representative of the law subjected the personnel of the squalid hotel the concierge and the man of all work did indeed confirm what the proprietress said and whilst my friend the gendarme puzzled and floundering, was scratching his head in complete bewilderment. I thought that the opportunity had come for me to slip quietly out by the still open door, and make my way as fast as I could to the sumptuous abode in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, where the gratitude of Madame de Nolle, together with five thousand francs, were even now awaiting me. After Madame the proprietress had identified Carissimo, I had once more carefully concealed him under my coat. I was ready to seize my opportunity, after which I would be free to deal with the matter of Theodore's amazing disappearance. Unfortunately, just at this moment, the little brute gave a jab, and the minion of the law at once interposed and took possession of him. "'The dog belongs to the police now, sir,' he said sternly. The fatuous Jobbernowl wanted his share of the reward, you see. End of chapter 4, part 2 Read by Lars Rolander